As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The race is on. And now the dust has settled on Lewis Hamilton's 7th World Championship, what better time to take an in-depth look at statistically F1's most successful driver? Is he a true great, or just a driver in the right place at the right time? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to talk all things Hamilton are Mark Hughes and Scott Mitchell. Mark, hello, how how are you? I I believe you've just come from your Covid test, haven't you? Yes, I don't know how many that is. 20-something. I'm sure you're about the same. Um, yes, <laughs> went well as far as I know. We'll see when I get the results. Yeah, always uh, fun to have someone rummaging around in your nose. Not a great way to go, but a small price to pay for, for Formula One happening this year. And in fact, Scott Mitchell, you've been vigorously uh, avoiding uh, COVID tests this year, haven't you? Yeah, uh, not that doesn't mean that I've been sort of finding a way to sort of sneak around to the need to have tests or anything like that. I haven't been avoiding protocol or anything I've just been avoiding the F1 paddock um while while the two of you have shared on-site duty I've been um manning everything at base basically and like it's been it's been an unusual year obviously would much much rather have been uh in the paddock and seeing everything uh trackside but thanks to the miracle of of Zoom and to a lesser extent Microsoft Teams and in a distant third place WebEx uh, been able to actually, you know, speak to the team bosses, speak to drivers, speak to tech people all season long, um, and just making sure that I roll out of bed straight to the desk and start work, and then <laughs> finish and go straight to bed, pretty much. So I've been making good use of the extra time that not uh, not being at the track actually affords you. It hasn't made a vast difference, although I was thinking about this. We're talking about Lewis Hamilton today, and in fact, Lewis Hamilton is seventh world championship. That's one of the great sporting achievements in any sports, and I can't think of many that had so few people on site, so I feel very privileged to have been one of the few who's actually been there. I mean, I say the few, it's still thousands of people because the F1 paddock is a big old place, and it takes a lot of people to run a Grand Prix, but still uh, still a great privilege to be there for a little bit of, of sporting history. And of course, it's that sporting history we're going to be talking about today by having a, a, a proper deep dive on, on Hamilton. We didn't talk too much about him on last week's Turkish Grand Prix podcast, because otherwise we'd have uh, not really got on to talking enough about the race. So we want to look at some of the criticisms of Hamilton, ask if they hold water, if they don't, and just try and give everyone a bit of a deeper understanding of what we've seen from Lewis Hamilton over the years, not just in 2020, but uh, but every season. So let's go straight into it, Scott. Looking at this year, Hamilton's got a 110-point lead over Valtteri Bottas. He sealed the title with three races to spare. It's a season Mercedes has utterly dominated. Now, we'd, we'd all like to see a tighter championship race. Even Hamilton himself probably would have enjoyed it. Has he had it too easy? Uh, well, I think this is one of two of criticisms that has a bit more sort of substance to them the other being the the car slash team advantage that that he enjoys which we'll obviously get into shortly whether he's had it too easy or not like he has he's had it made easier by the fact that there is a lack of opposition um and it doesn't matter whether it's Valtteri Bottas two point whatever the other guy in the Mercedes isn't quite on Lewis's level but that just means that Lewis is doing the best job of those two. And it also means that Lewis has done an excellent job to get himself in that position to have the best of everything. And in any case, 
there's a difference between winning the championship and absolutely dominating it. And and, and Hamilton has proven that with, what is it now, four titles in a row, um, six in seven seasons and all of these records that you put him in a position to 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 fight for these sort of statistics and accomplishments and he's absolutely going to nail it. And that's the difference between a great, which Lewis is, and a, and a very good driver like like Bottas is. So I think it's it's a little bit too simplistic and a little bit unfair to just say he's had it too easy. But at the same time, you do have to recognise that it's obvious, isn't it? He has not had uh, you know a four-way fight to overcome for the last few years. So yeah, the as ever, the truth is is somewhere in, in the middle. <laughs> well, it's a multifaceted thing, isn't it? Because the the circumstances a driver is confronted with, which in Lewis's case, it's a it's a dominant car, and it's a relatively straightforward season in that regard. That's kind of independent from the performance of the driver in the car. We have to kind of separate those things. I don't think twenty twenty is a classic championship season. People aren't going to cite it as one of the great title battles for very self evident reasons. But that doesn't necessarily diminish what's been done you can only beat what's in front of you and I think that's the that's the important thing and and you need to kind of separate those things yes the famous moments for the great drivers are always the tight battles that they prevail in and people will always remember his 2008 title far far more than they do this year's title but he's 10 times the driver probably now that he was in 2008 but that's that's the thing I think you have to separate in your mind I mean Mark the, the actual situation Hamilton's faced this year we also can't separate that from his contribution to the advantage as well, can we? It is a package, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. I mean, he's there's a, there's a lot of stuff that goes on behind the the radar, especially when you look at it over the long term, and you think, right, how how much has Hamilton contributed to this car being where it is? And he's obviously he's not um designing or engineering the car but he is um he is providing significant direction he is um what he wants from the car has guided that team into producing the tra- traits of the car that he's been asking for and as the years go by that influence it's cumulative and it, that is what what he has now is um a car which is very much built around what he he particularly feels he needs as a driver, which is um, you know, plenty of response and front end, and um, particularly in into slow corners. And he's not; it's not coincidence that the car has been developed in this direction. I mean, he's he's he is quite uh, active in and um, proactive in. Um, talking to guys at conception stage, even he's, the interview we did uh, last week, he's talking about he, he will talk to the the chief of aero about how where they are with next year's car and what they're working on, and gets them to talk through the car, and he'll say, well, "Why are you working on this bit?" And the engine, the aerodynamics will say, "Well, because the feedback we've got is that you want." So, ah, no, no, you it, you sort of lost in translation there. What I meant was, and you you know think. Just that it, it, they're just probably small things, but over the years, it's it's a, a a big part of why that car's as good as it is. And yeah, it has a, f- a fantastic collection of people. It is um, managed superbly well. Uh, it's got all the resources it needs. Yes, yes, it's got all of that. Um, but he's still um, an active part of what makes the car so good. It's really interesting to hear people like uh, Andrew Shovlin talk about the. The, the process that go the, the process of developing the car and the role that Lewis plays in that because to just pick up on what Mark was saying that Mercedes have sort of said quite a few times now that when, when Hamilton joined there there was this sort of lost in translation element where he was quite um quite vocal about the things that that, that he wanted but maybe it didn't always uh translate into what the un- engineers would understand and basically there would be certain things that Lewis asked for that they didn't necessarily see initially on the data because what what Shovelin says is that he Lewis has got such tremendous feel in 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 the car that he's basically getting an understanding and a, and, and a vibe of something that's not yet present on the data but will be present soon sooner rather than later 
and he identifies it early enough in the process that they can actually do something about it. And obviously this snowballs over years and years of, of development. And, and the more that Mercedes has been able to buy into that, this sort of sixth sense that, that Hamilton has in the car and what he wants, and the more, as Mark sort of put it, they've been able to understand each other so that what Lewis wants is actually being taken in by the engineering team in the manner that Lewis means it. Uh, it just creates this ultra effective way of, of perfecting the car. And that is a big part of why the best keeps on, on, on getting better because every year we see the Mercedes dominate and the Mercedes be the best car. And we think, well, they can't possibly get any better. Surely next year is the year that next year is the year that a Red Bull or a Ferrari finally close the gap and they never do. <laughs> Even in this ridiculous season, shorter than ever, Hamilton and Mercedes have found a way to raise the bar even higher. Yeah, I think that um, that point you raise about um, Lewis feeling something that's not necessarily shown on the data, it's, um, that, that is one of the, 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 the key sort of distinguishing factors between um, a, you know, a great um, team-engineer driver, driver relationship um, and a, you know, an, an ordinary one. And it's it's sort of the, the looking at the data and um, developing the car from what what the engineer is seeing is it's almost um, I mean it's the simple way to do it but it's almost tail wagging dog and um, they what what the, the the really good drivers tend to say is yeah you're not seeing it on the data because I'm driving in such a way as to make it not happen um but it trust me it is there and i I could make it appear on the data very easily and but if if you change it in a different way even though you're not seeing on the data i can drive differently and i guarantee you it'll be faster and that's that's what he's given them because that's not a uh an an understanding an an engineer would necessarily have he's just working from the data although the best ones you know the the really really good engineers do uh, tend to, to have a very good um, feel and understanding for what the driver's describing, um, but but sometimes you need a almost like a Babelfish in, in interpreter to, to translate what what the driver means to what the engineer hears. It's a good Hitchhiker's Guide uh, reference there. I'm, I'm I'm pleased that that's been that's been thrown in. Uh, but it's also manifested itself on track, hasn't it? This is an era where you don't dominate races. You don't vanish into the distance in the same way that you would have been able to do in the past because of all the limitations you're always managing. But he's had he's had three monster wins by today's standards, just over 30 seconds in Turkey, 25 seconds in Spain and Portugal. I think it was 15 seconds in Styria. So these are really, really big margins that, that speak to a driver at the top of his game. And if, if you look at the times when Hamilton has, if you want to say, underperformed, it's been by very slender margins, hasn't it? There haven't been big blunders, if he's being beaten by Bottas in qualifying, it's usually a relatively close fight. And I think that just speaks for a driver who not only is his peak very high, but his, his basement level of performance is is higher, is, is incredibly high. So he's always in that kind of level of performance that you need to to just smash it every single week. Yeah, and I think it did, what you um, touched on there with the margin of victories, um, I think that speaks for the different demands that have been faced particularly this season because we've been racing in places um, when the, the, the temperature's been a lot lower than you, we would normally see. So you've seen a bigger spread of demands and the conventional way that we've seen in this area, um, you, you're usually working against heat degradation of the tyres. So you can't really just go off, head off into the distance because if you do, your tyres are too hot very quickly and you, you, you don't get the stint lengths to do the optimum strategy but we've seen a few times this year where the tires have been slightly under temperature and you can't really get them at the heat deck territory and that's just let lewis off the leash that's just right okay you can now just push and the faster faster you push the faster your race time is going to be um, which isn't always you know it's not usually the case and that's just really given a little picture of the the type of dominance we would be seeing, and it would look very different to just the result dominance that we're seeing, but it would look very different on track um, had we still got old school F1 on tyres that you can push all the time. That's that's the extent of his dominance. Well, should we move on to our, our next 
section, which is is kind of related, uh, Mark. You know, the Mercedes has been the best car of 2020. You can't dispute that. This is the most persistent criticism of Hamilton, isn't it? That it that it's all about the car. Certainly true. He's often had the best car in Formula One, even though that's not universally been the case, even in this V6 Turbo Hybrid era. So it's a thorny question, isn't it? Is it the car or the driver? Well, it's both. It's all. It's always both. And there's a third element. It's the team as well. And I would contend that in 2018, if you'd given the Mercedes team the Ferrari, and given the Ferrari team the Mercedes, and kept the you know the, the same driver lineup. Um, that Mercedes with the Ferrari car at Lewis would have won that championship much more comfortably than they actually did because that Ferrari car was a better, faster car globally. Not every not every race. Um, and people would then point to the number of pole positions that Lewis had because it was more than what Vettel had. But when you look, you delve into it, um, looking at some of the margins of the, some of those poles, at least four of those were absolutely Lewis poles and not car poles. And that suddenly changes the dynamic quite drastically. Um, just the type of poles where the driver said, geez, I don't know how he did that. That that car could not go flat through that corner, and he did it. And those sort of poles where it's, it, it takes a very special uh, you know, individual performance to, to drag something extra from it. Um, so that I would say that was the highlight of the the turbo era in, in terms of um, how closely matched the, the top cars were to 2018. Um, 17, there were times as well when the Ferrari was quicker, and I wouldn't say it was mm, a, an easy an easy call which of those two cars was faster. So, yes, he's, he's, he's only had ever sort of one, one team to compete with, and often not even that. But, you know, that's, that's not his fault. That's, that's, that's everybody else's fault. And and to pick up on something that Mark sort of talk, talked about there, but also in, in, in a previous answer, we, when you were referring to the the low grip races we've had in 2020 and how that's allowed sort of Lewis to come to the fore, I, th- I think that shows the the difference that he makes as a driver in in, in that package. Look at um, Portugal; I think was a was a very good example, sort of. Losing ground early on, and it looking like this is going to be a, a a Bottas kind of race, and Lewis just has that brilliant blend now that that comes with experience and and sheer skill, where he's able to he's able to keep calm when things are going against him, and he's able to get a feel for what's underneath him, and he's got a sort of bigger picture view, so he knows what he needs to do in order to, to 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 bring a race to him, to let a race come to him when he's not in control of it and then to absolutely smash it when 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 the race does come within his control. We saw that with the the utter domination in the second half of the, the Portuguese Grand Prix. Um, and then obviously we saw it in Turkey as well when everyone else was sort of losing their heads around him and it was it was Lewis who kept it together. And I, I, I think that the, the Turkish race, I think has been mischaracterized slightly because sort of it, there's a few people who seem to sort of think that Lewis was faultless in that race, and he wasn't. Obviously, he made mistakes on the opening lap and uh, early in his second stint as well when he lost uh, lost places. But the difference was that Lewis's mistakes were really small. They weren't race-ending mistakes. They they they, they weren't as costly. Uh, and when it came to the crunch, when it came to the pressure moments, it was Lewis that delivered. And I think he showed in that race why he is also making the difference. So it's obviously, you couldn't put him in a Williams and he'd win the title. This just, that just wouldn't happen. But what it means is that if if he didn't have the car advantage, if it was a level playing field, if it was a straight fight, I still think Lewis prevails over the course of a season. I think in if you had it in absolutely equal machinery, I think Verstappen and Leclerc absolutely put him under enormous pressure and beat him several times. In, in in straight fights, race by race, but over the course of the season, I don't see Ham- I don't see anyone being quite on Hamilton's level in terms of being able to put everything together across the various range of circumstances you have during a full season. And this sort of brings us back to the point that Mark was making about Hamilton's role in conjunction with the team and the data, etc. Because th- this thing about the driver being the centre point of the data is so important because all of your data channels they're measuring set certain things but the driver is the area where all of that comes together everything the driver feels is just another kind of data 
but that ability to piece everything together and understand what's induced by the driver, what's induced by the car, what's a compensatory mechanism to a limitation. Because it's very, very easy for drivers to come in and say, oh, we've got an understeer problem, but not understand what the root of it is. Maybe it is a fundamental balance problem, but maybe it's something the driver's doing. That's really, really important. And the fact Hamilton can do that day in, day out is is just so, so essential. And I think you look at the sheer weight of numbers that Hamilton has achieved and then you think of how many times drivers have underachieved in, in great cars. Grand Prix history is full of it. You can say Valtteri Bottas has underachieved with this Mercedes. He's a very, very good Grand Prix driver. And there's countless examples of this, of, of good drivers in the past who, who we know are quick, who we know can win races, but they can't do it just week in, week out. And, uh, and he's getting towards 100 victories and polls, which is just absolutely staggering. Yes, if he'd made different career decisions and he'd gone down a different path, he wouldn't have the same number of championships, but he'd still be doing the same thing in in more limited limited machinery. But we should move on, Scott, to the question of teammates. Valtteri Bottas battled hard against Hamilton, came up short again this year, as he's done in all four of their seasons together. So this is this other regular criticism, isn't it, that he has compliant teammates, that he's the number one, that it's it's easy, there's no opposition from within the team. Does that hold any water? Uh, well, there's not no opposition because Bottas is a superb qualifier and I think one of the very fastest drivers on, on the grid. But where Bottas falls short is on a Sunday. He just doesn't have the the he just doesn't have as many tools as as Lewis does. So when when you're faced with difficult and changing circumstances in particular, but just just in general, the the, the, the raw performance isn't there to match match Hamilton over a race distance over a stint. Um, if he had a Max Verstappen alongside him, his life would be a lot harder. That that is that is true. It would be it would be an intensified version of what we saw Hamilton versus Rosberg, uh, because there would be a driver of more uh, what's the polite way of saying it? So I don't insult Nico. Um, <laughs> sort of heightened raw performance with with Max compared to to, to Nico. So so the, yeah, that would be even harder than we saw in 2014 through 16, and. Some people do obviously point to the fact that the one year that Hamilton had a teammate capable of going wheel to wheel with him and also finding his weaknesses, pushing him psychologically, Rosberg won the title. But the counter to that is that Hamilton would still have overcome that heightened challenge from Rosberg without the reliability problems. You look at how he fared against Fernando Alonso in 2007 as a rookie. Uh, and I think, as you said earlier in this podcast, Ed, Hamilton is a much, much better driver now than he was 13 years ago. Um so, yeah, it, obviously you can you can hold it against him in the sense that he he doesn't have a, a an, another. Toto Wolf says that there's two alpha drivers in that team, but there aren't. Val- Valtteri isn't isn't quite that. But I think as we sort of touched on all, uh, earlier, you can only beat what's in front of you, and it's not just that Hamilton does enough to beat Bottas; he absolutely obliterates him. Sometimes it's not necessarily seen in the form of a half-second qualifying gap, but sometimes it is. Like his Russian Grand Prix pole lap this year abs- like demolished Bottas. Bottas had absolutely no no kind of retort. He's he's also just far better over the course of a race distance and, as we've seen this year, emphatically better over a season as well. Um, okay, it's been sort of flattered slightly by Bottas losing points where he shouldn't have lost points because of mechanical dramas, but Bottas still wouldn't be denying Lewis a title for much longer. So it comes down to more than just beating Bottas. He's he's absolutely smashing him into the ground. And we've also got to point out, if we look in the wider context of his career, this is Hamilton's 14th season in F1. Eight of those seasons, he's been teammate to either a, a former or future world champion with Nico Rosberg, Fernando Alonso, Jensen Button, and he's had success up against them all. Bottas, as we said, is a good driver. And even someone like Heike Kovalainen, who's a bit of a footnote Grand Prix driver now, uh, he, he never lived up to the the expectation, but he was a Grand Prix winner. And ultimately, Hamilton was able to, to defeat him emphatically. And I think this is very important because it's not as if he's had a third-rate teammate throughout, throughout his whole career. And I also think we see this throughout Grand Prix history – you don't preserve kind of a de facto number one driver. And he's a de facto number one driver in in Mercedes. He doesn't have a car advantage or anything, but naturally the team galvanises around that. But you don't sustain that position if you're not performing. You can maybe hang on to it for a season against uh, an up-and-comer who's proved themselves against you. But 
it just turns like that. Look at Ferrari with Vettel. Vettel was their main man. Leclerc comes in, establishes himself. Suddenly, they don't want Vettel anymore. These things change so, so, so quickly. And Hamilton has sustained that level. And I think that's a that's a really important factor. But Mark, obviously, the comparison here is you, you can compare it to someone like Michael Schumacher, another absolute all-time great a slightly more structured kind of number one, two driver with him, not quite a stellar and array of teammates, still a, a great driver, but it's not quite the same situation as that kind of thing. And it's certainly not the situation that you had 50, 60 years ago when you'd have a very, very clear hierarchy within a team. Yeah, that's right. Um, Ross Braun uh, structured the, uh, certainly the Ferrari team, um, very much around Michael, and that, that that was the whole game plan. Was with John Tott um, was was part of it as well, but and and Ross only joined a year after. But the whole the whole game plan was built around having Michael as the number one, and not having someone in there that would um, sort of you know challenge him. It, it was the, the the other driver was there as a support driver. There was there was no um, pretense that he was there to compete against. Michael, he was there to support Michael, and that's that's never been the case with Lewis at Mercedes. Um, Lewis, as he says, uh, always been the number one. We just, but it's by virtue of performance and by virtue of the expectation of performance that the team has. And um, and yeah, as you say, if you if you go back to Fangio's time, yeah, absolutely, he was absolute dominant number one and. Um, justified it on performance, but um, certainly uh, joined joined those teams. Um, and he, he did he did sort of jump from team to team, whoever looked to have the, the best prospect. Um, but he would join those teams absolutely on those those terms, that there would be an array of support drivers. And in 56 at Ferrari, one of them um, even gave up his chances of the world championship because um, it, it, was, it, should, it should have been Fangio's on performance and it was looking like it was Fangio might possibly lose it on reliability and and this was in the days when you could um, swap cars and uh, one Ferrari teammate said absolutely not and Collins without hesitation just said yeah of course Um, because he recognised he was the better driver he was the number one driver and it wouldn't have been a a just outcome if Collins had somehow won it on reliability and that's um, (laughs) I don't even if you were allowed to um, Swap cars now. I don't suppose that that would ever happen because it was a, a a less intense sport then. But yeah, I mean, this the idea of them um, being number one is is it's only ever by performance. It's never been it's never been um, a formal part of his agreement with any team. It's interesting with the um, with the argument of an easy ride with teammates. It's a, it's very similar to the. So it's all about the car criticism, I think. Um, the old, the bottom line there is your frustration is with Formula One and with other teams for not doing a good enough job to challenge Hamilton over the course of a season. But it, I think it gets sort of redirected and taken out on him, if you see what I mean, because there have been flashes of it. You know, Mark talked earlier about the, the, the Ferrari season. So in F1 history, as we sort of touched on, the, you are you're reliant on the job of the, the external opponents rather than the, the the internal ones. I think obviously Hamilton versus Rosberg and Hamilton versus um, Hamilton versus Alonso McLaren in in, in two thousand and seven are sort of the obvious examples that spring to mind in recent memory. But apart from that, I'm sort of struggling because obviously you had an internal rivalry at Red Bull with Vettel and and Mark Webber, but apart from um, Apart from 2010, obviously, when that went down to the wire, Weber never re- never sustained a, a, a full season challenge against Vettel, really, did he? No, that's true. Um, and it's it, 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 like you say, it's down it's down to the the quality of the the opposition, um, which you you have no control over. And I mean, the other the other thing, of course, is that if, for example, you had. Um, Valtteri Bottas had been in the Ferrari for the last few years instead of Seb, and he would have no doubt had a lot of success. Um, and you would maybe hear people saying, "Yeah, but if you'd put Bottas in the Merck alongside Hamilton, Hamilton would have some competition." And 
I, you would. I don't think that's. You know, I think a lot of a lot of the perception of the quality of the second driver comes from the fact that Lewis has obliterated them, and it's not because they're necessarily second-rate drivers. And I think when it comes to all these these criticisms we've addressed so far, there's there's kind of some unstated premises un, underpinning them, which I think debases it because the argument that it's all about the car, well, that implies that somehow that's different to how it was in the past. Now, we've said it's not all about the car, but the car's always been a crucial component. The car and the potential of the car defines what the driver can do, but it's the driver's job to get as much as 100% out of that, plus make their contribution to raising what the maximum is theoretically. When it comes to having it too easy in seasons like this, it it kind of undermines the, the fact that the driver themselves has made it look easy with their excellence. And when it comes to the quality of teammates, it comes to, well, there aren't very many drivers who could actually look like a tough teammate against a driver like Lewis Hamilton. That's always been the way, whether you're talking about, you know, we talk about Michael Schumacher having number twos. Well, he got that status because he deserved it. And where are you going to find a Michael Schumacher level of driver? It's not very, very, very easy to do. So all of these things that there's this kind of silent assumption that I feel just leads to those those criticisms, if not dissolving completely, largely doing so. Well, when you think about the the championship challenges of, say, the last 20 years, um, when, when was the world champion someone who um, overcame uh, not having the fastest car and overcame or, and or overcame a fierce teammate fight? I, I can't think of of many. I think it's 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 you probably count them on 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 one hand. Obviously, Hamilton is is one of them uh, with the the two thousand and eight title up against the 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 Ferrari. I guess you could probably flip a coin between whether the Ferrari and the, or the McLaren was the the outright fastest car that season. Obviously, Rosberg did it in twenty sixteen in terms of overturning a teammate, you know, beating beating a teammate. So he's done that there, but in you know the Red Bull years with Vettel, I think the Red Bull was the superior car, wasn't it? Um, and then when you go back to probably two thousand and two thousand and five, uh, Alonso winning when the McLaren was the the, the fastest car, Alonso winning in, in the Renault. I don't know where, how you rate two thousand and six in that in that sort of criteria with Alonso Alonso in the Renault, Schumacher in the in the Ferrari. But my point being, it's vanishingly rare isn't it for for there to be for there to be a world champion who <laughs> hasn't had a co- compliant teammate or the fastest car and likewise you mentioned Alonso there you know people say oh well Hamilton's got seven titles Alonso's got two that's purely down to the circumstance and yeah there is a world where Alonso could have won seven world championships with similar opportunity but Alonso is an absolute all-time great driver as well so that's not exactly a a, a reasonable comparison uh, you would say in that so th- this is why the pure statistics of Hamilton only tell part of the story and I, you can never in in Grand Prix racing slice and dice stats to give yourself a definitive answer because there's too many different factors that they ignore it's like any form of data number of wins it's one data channel it tells you something on its own, it doesn't tell you a great deal unless you start looking at what your win opportunity is, etc. Well, let's have a look at some of the, the wider things with Hamilton now. Mark, you recently did an interview with Hamilton, which has appeared on the, the race's website, entitled How Hamilton Has Transformed Himself Since Leaving McLaren. That's well worth a read. That looked at the evolution of Hamilton. Clearly, as I said, things would have gone a lot differently for him had he not joined Mercedes for 2013. There are those who suggest he somehow got lucky by making that move, but it is a lot more complicated than that, isn't it? It is, and uh, luck was certainly part of it, but it 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 wasn't sort of fifty fifty luck. It was um, he recognised that he needed to move on from McLaren. There were certain limitations, not that he could see, not just in the team itself, but in, in his relationship with the team. And he there was an element of him um, being forever the apprentice there because they'd they'd funded his career since he was 13 etc cetera, etc cetera. um so even though he'd, he'd achieved um world championship status there there was still an element where he felt he wasn't uh listened to enough and he, he, he did sort of yearn to join a new environment where he would be um 
as a as an incoming driver of a certain status, there would be more open to um, to his input, and that was a big big part of the play that um, Ross Braun made in getting him to come over to Mercedes. But the other the other part was heading into the hybrid era. It it, it did look um, that you were going to need to be with a a factory team, and the, even though McLaren was at that time outperforming Mercedes, you, you wouldn't have said that in the long term that that was a pattern that was going to withhold. So there was part, yeah, part it was driven um, by emotion. Lewis did feel uh, not undervalued, but he did feel he was set in a certain role that he couldn't get out of at McLaren. And he did recognize that that was probably going to be a limitation. And then his, his judgment of the, 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 he allowed Ross to convince him almost of the, the, the technical potential within the team. So no, it wasn't just a lucky, I'll, I'll give that a go and see, because it might work, it might not. It was, it was more structured than that. Yeah. I remember at the time wrote a piece in, in 2012 that was about why Hamilton effectively needed to leave home, should we say. So that he could he could make his own path, and and he has learned a lot from Mercedes because when he first went in there, it did dawn on him that he needed to be a little bit more of a team player, should we say, or rather understanding how to be that team player because he was going from a position where he was kind of at the other end of that process, whereas he wanted to be kind of at the centre of it, and that was a that was a learning curve for him. There was also the learning curve of being up against Rosberg, particularly twenty sixteen when Hamilton was the better driver over the course of twenty sixteen. Uh, he didn't absolutely maximise everything. There were some things he didn't do right, but there were also some pretty significant reliability blows that disproportionately hit his side. And I think what he realised in that season was that it's not enough to be to think, oh, I'm better, I'm 20 points ahead. It's You've got to leave nothing on the table, leave no stone unturned. And I think that was the the kind of final piece in creating what I call the peak Hamilton period, which is it's kind of still building now. We're still... He's either at that crest of that wave or he's not quite crested it. As he said, he's still getting better. So that whole rationale for, that you talked about for leaving for Mercedes has worked very, very well, as well as the fact that it's put him in an incredibly uh, good place. And, and in fact, people talk about bad decisions of certain drivers. Fernando Alonso is always the one that's cited. And while some of those things were bad luck, you can't fault the fact that Hamilton has has made one big Big, big career move decision in his career and it's been absolutely spot on and that is to his credit. Yeah, I mean, Fernando has effectively taken himself out of the game and it's, it's, a, it's a point that uh, Lewis has made actually. He, he's always very, very uh, respectful of Alonso's level as a driver but um, recently when he's been asked about Fernando, he has made that point. He said, well, Fernando took himself out of the game. So, you know, those choices are absolutely crucial. And so, yeah, yeah, he's got a point. I think what Lewis has done with those moves is put himself in a position to grow up as a driver as well as um, grow up as an individual because I think we saw it in the the sort of transition into the, the Vettel era in the early 2010s that... that that, that Lewis just wasn't quite, he didn't have everything together in, in, in his personal life for, for, for whatever reason. And we've since seen him sort of grow quite a lot, mature quite a lot with Mercedes. And I think a big part of it is because, you know, he didn't live his, didn't live his teenage years. He didn't live his young adult years to, to, to the, to the usual degree while he was at, at McLaren. So I think he did a lot of growing up quite quickly at Mercedes, finding his own path and, who he is, and and I think that brought more out of him as a, as a driver as well. So Mercedes basically unleashed a lot of the potential within Lewis as a as an individual and a driver, and 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 it goes for pretty much any person in any discipline. I think the happier and and more complete you are as an individual, I think the the, the best, the more that manifests itself in quality of output in in whatever you're doing. And with with Lewis, he's just become more and more potent a force as Mercedes as as the Mercedes era has developed, and I think that's what makes comparisons to things earlier in his career futile. When you compare Lewis now, like some people, 
will look back and say, okay, yeah, but you know, he was outscored by Button over their time together as as teammates. That kind of criticism doesn't hold water because the the Lewis Hamilton of twenty twenty, I don't I don't think would be outscored by Button at all over those three years at McLaren. I think Lewis would would quite comfortably sort of see see that off. And this but you can't compare what the driver he is now to the driver he was eight or nine years ago. That that's not that's not fair because that's not a fair reflection of the driver he's developed into and and that's who you're judging. That's who you're seeing on track now. So I think there has been and I think there has been quite a significant development and transformation for, for Hamilton over the Mercedes era, which very possibly is why some people don't quite give him the credit he deserves, because maybe that's not as easy to see on on the outside and, and maybe you don't see just how much he's transformed. So people still th- see him as this driver who was flawed at the McLa- in the at McLaren and in 2013 or 2014 the start of the Mercedes so they they do you see what I mean they sort of see a slightly lesser version of Hamilton than is actually there yeah I think you have to judge a driver by the level they ultimately get to we normally judge the greats by by their best period don't we and Hamilton's best period is very long but even Hamilton at his worst you know, at his most raw, he almost won the world championship in his first season. So that's a pretty astonishing basement level. And then, of course, he did win the championship in 2008. It was a fairly chaotic season across the board, but he still came through that fantastic victory in uh, in Interlagos. So, yeah, I, I think that far from being a criticism, if you want to say, oh, look at him when he was younger, I think what you say there is look how much he's evolved as well since then, becoming better and better. And also, Formula One's turned on its head as Mark was talking about earlier in terms of the way you win races. The way you won a race in 2007, totally different to how you win it now, yet he's thrived across those uh, those 14 seasons. Now, Scott, let's come on to what we're going to call the, the Jackie Stewart critique. This is more about when you start comparing Hamilton with greats of the past. I mean, as Stewart said recently, inevitably, if you're racing in the days before safety was paramount, there was a certain level of greatness bestowed because of the risks of life and limb. And there's no denying that's true, but when we get into this broader comparison, does it does it hold water? Does it actually matter? Um, I, th- oh, I don't know. I, I, I think it. I think it doesn't. But that's because I re- I don't believe in comparing eras. So uh, I don't. I don't think you. Um, I, I don't think you can judge Hamilton and the current generation on not facing up to the dangers of fifty years ago. Because by the same token, you 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 can't hold it against a Fangio type uh, that F1 wasn't as um, serious or, or, or disciplined. I know, I know I'm doing F1 a disservice and, and the job he did a disservice when I phrase it like that. But my point is that the natural evolution means that, you know, drivers have a lot more to work with nowadays. They're much more refined talents. They've got a broader skill set because it's more honed in different areas. And um, it would be unfair to say that our oh, Fangio's t- technically a worse driver than anyone of the current era because evolution means that this generation has to be the best ever. Like, that's not fair. You judge Fangio because of what the job he did in the era he raced, you, and I think you do it now. And as I think Sebastian Vettel put it in Turkey, um, you know, if you put the current crop of drivers into Fangio's era, you know, they'd uh, they'd mess their pants. Uh, Vettel used a slightly more colourful turn of phrase but he said w- would the current drivers mess their pants if they had to drive the Nordschleifer in 1950s Grand Prix cars or would they be brilliant in it you know, would a uh, Fangio type be blown away by the sheer speed and downforce of the modern day cars they, they are they're, they're, so, they're unfair questions to ask and I think they only really exist to sort of undermine or undercut uh, the argument of how good a good a a driver is uh, so I'm looking at it more from a is the comparison fair rather than um sort of the the the, the value of the, the the risk factor if you see what I mean yeah of course you can't do it you can't you can't compare era to era um and, and get the sort of comparative you know status of driver it, 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 it's impossible to do um but the I think the underlying point that uh, Fangio's time, Jim Clark's time, Jackie Stewart's time, all pretty much as dangerous as each other, really, um, was that it was a a bigger, more serious game at a philosophical level. 
Um, and but it it couldn't remain so. It couldn't remain so in the modern age, in the in the commercialized age. Um, so it had to become safer. So that's not the fault of the drivers who came along after them. But it 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 is a it is a philosophically smaller game when um, uh, an error is a flat spotted set of tires or a trip to the gravel trap than a trip to the morgue. Um, that that that's just you can't change that fact, and that's but that's nothing to do with the guys who were competing in w- whichever age they were doing. Um, personally, I think anybody that's good enough to dominate their eras in the way that those guys have done, um, if you wiped all their memory and experience, uh, you know, if you could sort of clone them and just have blank versions of them and then and you could do the experiment and put them in each era that each dominate their era the only way you could um the only way they wouldn't is if you paired them if you paired a fanjo with a hamilton and a, a, a clark a clark with a center or whatever then you would see something else again that would be the sort of the you know the the battle of the gods sort of thing but i think when you have those uh, once-in-a-generation talents, those guys could have dominated in any of the eras. I think that's that's just... Uh, because the game, even though the individual ways of doing it um, change with the cars and the technology, the the essence of what makes one guy quicker than another guy is the same. It's just judging speed against grip. And it, it, that that's not changed. And it, it, that, that is the essence of it. One One thing I'd add to what I said before because i'm a bit wary of sounding like i'm belittling the, the 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 danger of the the eras that that came before is that yes it, it magnifies the achievement i think if you're as as, as mark put it you're you're confronting a, a greater risk um so so there is sort of like a a magnification let's say like one 1. 1.5 times as impressive as it is doing it knowing that all you're going to do is run wide into a car park because you've gone wide round through a corner. So yeah, there is a magnification there in terms of how impressive it is. But I would counter that with the fact that in, in, a, in a different era, um, the, the, there's a magnification in terms of uh, intensity of opposition, say the, through, the, through, through, through the 80s, for, for, for example, in the Senna versus Prost um, battle, uh, especially, you, one could argue that 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 no one has had to go up against a, a, a an opponent like that. So that achievement is therefore heightened compared to something Fangio did or something that Hamilton's Hamilton's done. And in the modern era, no driver, no none of the world champions in the past had to put up with as grueling a, a an F one specific schedule. Obviously, in the past, drivers were flying around or racing in 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 all sorts. So it's a slightly different comparison, but the intensity of opposition now where you know if you lose so much as a tenth of a second you might be starting think of how many races Hamilton would start from second on the grid instead of pole if he was just one or two tenths slower you know such a tiny percentage away from getting the maximum out of the car so there's there's just the it's just a different it's a different game isn't it there, there, there are different there are different challenges and, and stuff like this so where where a champion from 2000 from the 2000s will get more points in a certain column. The drivers from the 50s will be getting more points from a different column, but they all add up to a, an equally ridiculous total because, as Mark said, they're all, they're all greats from their own era. Well, this segues us nicely into the next section, which is setting aside the risk element, but also looking at the comparison to the past. So, Mark, there is this contention that success in F1 now is somehow easier to achieve than it once was, given that nature of that driving challenge. And also the fact that these days there is a more sustained dominance from certain teams. Over the past decade, we've had two teams and two spells of dominance from Red Bull and Mercedes, and, and that, that's it. So how much should that be factored in when it comes to Hamilton? Well, it depends if you're measuring them on statistics, which you, we shouldn't be doing. Um, if you're measuring on statistics, yeah, there's two massive factors. One is that it's perfectly feasible to have a, a career of, of a decade or more um, and survive it, which, you, you know, the, the guys at the the previous decades um, didn't have that luxury. And the other thing is the the length of the competitive cycles. As as the sport has become much more technologically sophisticated, uh, an era of dominance tends to last longer than it did. 
Um, it used to last a matter of races back in the you know in the fifties or sixties. Um, not not whole whole seasons, not um, seven eight seasons that we we're, we're seeing now. Um, so yes, of course that has to be factored in when we're looking at the the numbers. But I, I contend that the uh, the statistics are just a, a nice little story for the outside world to to make a you know to make a sort of a little headline. It's, it's something significant has happened here, but it, it it has no real bearing on on the reality. I spoke to um, I spoke to Alan Prost about this quite recently. It was really interesting to get his take because he was he was very keen to make it clear that he doesn't doesn't view the current era of F one as lesser to to the era in which he competed and had so much success in. He you know it's just different, and different doesn't mean better or worse. Um, but one one thing that he did have a very strong opinion on, which um, which is very similar to what Mark said. Um, is he, he thinks that statistics are only relevant in the context of the era that they were earned. So, uh, one some, something that Alan in, in particular is quite keen to, uh, or was quite keen to put across, was his uh, was it eighty two? I think when he had like a ridiculous uh, conversion rate of um, finishes, and it was basically just he. If you look at his success. Um, the number of wins he's had in 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 his career, I think. It, I think the, the, does Alan have something like one in four or something like that for for one 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 in four starts? But if you look at it, if you then change that to wins in wins per finish, I think it turns like one in three. Um, and that's something that you know a driver like Lewis or, or Sebastian in in his Red Bull era, and 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 Michael, I think as well to to, to a degree, that's just something that doesn't affect their era, is it? Uh, the reliability is such a, a lesser a lesser factor. So yeah, the stats are just a the stats can be a red herring. Um, I, I, I think it's uh, which just underlines further underlines the argument that you should just enjoy the great within the era that you're you're watching them. And it's a little it's a fun conversation to have, obviously, but it's a bit of a fool's errand to then try and like compare and contrast. Yeah, I, I don't think it, it tells you anything. I mean, for example, if you want to compare. Hamilton with Fangio. For Fangio to have notched up the number of starts Hamilton has, he'd have had to carry on all the way to 1975, even if he gets the 1952 season that he missed through injury back. So that kind of tells you how that there's no way to have a have a, a comparison. And, and it's all about, you know, even when it comes to win rates and that kind of thing, it's like you say, with retirements and unreliability, with opportunity, if you have 10 chances to win a Grand Prix and only 10 chances and you win 10 of them, then you're you're pretty damn good. But if you were to win fifty races and you had two hundred chances, that's different. So uh, for me, it's it's all about that. There's there's drivers who dominate statistically in in periods, and those are you know, Fangio dominated statistically in the fifties. Hamilton's dominating statistically now. They're very similar achievements in in that regard. So it's not really about saying now is better or the past is better. But yeah, you know, Formula One's much more complex now than it was but there's there's not that risk of life so all of these things are are very different Fangio didn't have data to rely on he just had to rely on what he was doing but then again it was more simple he didn't have to be part of this massive industrial machine in order to uh, to have the success so all of these challenges uh, I, I guess vary over time but fundamentally it's still about getting a car with four wheels from start to finish of a race as quickly as you can to be to do it quicker than everyone else as often as you can and Hamilton has done that incredibly incredibly well over his his career uh, let's deviate a little bit now Scott and talk about Hamilton off track because he does seem to rile some people enormously with what we can broadly call his, his activism he's made Black Lives Matter cause a central part of F1 he's spoken out on environmental issues and even after winning the title he talked about well, he broke one of F1's great taboos by addressing human rights in, in countries hosting Grand Prix uh, tentatively. Obviously, there's lots of talk about that with, with Saudi Arabia coming in next year. It's increasingly clear that he does see that as part of his legacy, as much, of, as much if not more, in fact, than, than his actual statistical success. I think it's been quite a transformative year for, for Hamilton off track. I think he's been sort of moving this way the older he's got, the more sort of in tune he's got with his surroundings, I think. His priorities are just shifting, but I think there has been a big one this year. I think he's been moved into this this combination of the 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 eruption or the reigniting of uh, 
a global push for for equality and raising awareness of discrimination and positive activism. Um, I think that caught Hamilton's uh, attention, uh, and it was at the perfect time as well because when F1 season slipped into that early hiatus, there was a lot of time for reflection and not a lot else. And Hamilton has been a full-time racing driver for however many years now. So this was a a rare opportunity for him to actually sort of look into the issues more, understand the issues. And they became a bigger part of his sort of thinking and conscious because there was less else going on. He wasn't distracted for, for want of a better word by his day job. And, that's why I think there has been this eruption in activity on his side. Uh, and I think that combats the criticism that we hear quite a lot, which is that Hamilton uh, is only, has only done it this year because it suits him, because it's good to be seen to be doing this, because that's what everyone else is doing. It's like, well, no, that's not such a simplistic and unfair and dismissive way of of looking at it. I think he, I think he has sort of grown to care about these issues over time. And this year has just been an almost perfect storm to to bring it to the surface and be something that he he really wants to champion because he does genuinely believe in it all. That's why it's, it's you know everyone criticizes him for just being mouthy on social media basically, but it, it isn't on social media. It's, it's, it's action as well. He put you know put himself in the firing line with um, with the FIA and F1 with his Brianna Taylor T-shirt um, earlier this year. Uh, he's he's he's. He's he's walking the walk with the foundation of the Hamilton Commission, so there's 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 a lot to back up what 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 Lewis is doing, and I think it's something to give him credit for rather than try and cut him down with. And I think in this joined up more transparent social media era, I don't think um, the sport any sport can anymore exist in a little bubble and pretend that um, the, the issues of the outside world don't exist um, in that idealized way that people think um, seem to think it, it should. I think it's inevitable that uh, the sport, are gonna, global sports in particular, are going to be asked, forced to address these issues and declare what their stance is on it. And I think Lewis has been sort of leading F1 by the nose. He's maybe put F1 in some awkward moments but I think in the long term I think when we look back on it the sport will have him to thank for doing that yeah it's going to be a huge part of his legacy and it's it's hugely important as well because I think it's rather disingenuous when people decide he's just doing it for some purely personal agenda I think in some cases that reflects a certain mindset that you would only ever do anything if it directly benefits you rather than for for wider courses I think you know, we've we've heard Lewis Hamilton talk about this a lot in person, and I think there's a sincerity there. You might disagree with him personally. I think he's pretty much broadly on the right track with with things. But even if you disagree with him, I don't think it's fair to tackle his sincerity. I think he does mean what he says, and you see the benefit he's had. Let's take the the Black Lives Matter. He's got other drivers talking out, talk, speaking out about it, not because they feel pressured into it, as people say. But listen to Daniel Ricciardo, and he'll say, "Yeah, well." It was a topic that maybe it's very easy to be nervous about diving into it because you don't necessarily think that that you have the right to if you're a if you're a white Australian Grand Prix driver or you're a you're a white British F1 podcaster or whatever. But what Hamilton has done is empower people to say, look, it's all right to talk about this topic. Listen to the stories of those who are affected by it, understand it, and try and just join this movement. And that is really important because it's not just him shouting about things, it's him actually positively empowering people to understand, encouraging people to delve into the the problems. And that's why I cite Ricardo, because he's been very good at saying, well, he, he's looked into things more and he's understood it more. And that's very, very positive. And, and that, there'll be lots of Daniel Ricardos out there among Formula One fans, among other drivers, among journalists maybe as well, who he, he's made them think and understand these problems. They'll always be the vocal ones who who dislike it and but you're not really trying to persuade them you're trying to persuade the kind of the the, the majority in the middle who don't necessarily fully understand this or don't feel that they ca- that it's their fight to delve into shall we say so that's what's really important about Hamilton for me um one of the things that I think has been been really important this year and this is why he's sort of it he he said that it's the off-track stuff that I think is going to mean more to him when he stops or is it going to be a bigger deal because obviously the the the, the colossal on track success and 
going down as the one of the greatest and statistically the greatest that Formula One's ever seen is obviously going to be be a huge uh, a huge achievement for Hamilton. But I think one of the reasons that he sees the off track stuff as such an important part of his legacy is that I think he recognizes the the depth of the problem. And it's what you it's like what you were saying there, Ed, where it's about um tackling a different a different part of the the issue. So I think Lewis has recognized more or, or understood more over the last year or so that it's going to be a really, really long and tough battle for people to understand fully an issue like racism and the way it sort of seeps has has seeped into society to the point where it isn't <laughs> to put it in a slightly you know glib way it isn't about people donning pointy white hoods anymore is it it's it's um obviously as much as that is still a lingering problem in in small extremist factions the the bigger issue is the 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 moderate side of it where people don't understand how it has become sort of systemic and rooted in sort of habits and assumptions and 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 stereotypes it's a subconscious kind of bias and so Hamilton really wants to sort of bring that to the surface and, and try to tackle it. And that's why he talks about it as from a legacy point of view, because he knows that he's not going to fix the problem by, this is the thing that people accuse him of wanting to fix racism by getting everyone to bend, bend the knee. And it's like, well, no, that's not what he's saying at all. He's saying this is like a first step in a thousand mile journey. Uh, he recognizes that it's a lot longer and that's why it's going to require a legacy rather than something that Hamilton fixes in the next 12 months and then gets to enjoy while he's he's still around. He he talks about it being for future generations. He talks about building a better world for children and 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 th- those that come after us and he he is absolutely right. Uh but I do think it's a bit too deep and philosophical for some people to reckon reconcile especially with a with a Formula 1 driver so maybe it gets a little bit lost in translation. Yeah, he's certainly not been afraid of confronting it as a complicated problem, and it's it's an important problem. And there's there's numerous causes he's he's started to take up. He does sometimes get criticised for not taking up all the causes, but that seems like a, a ridiculous level of expectation and deployment of water bowsery that you can't you can't fight for any particular cause if you're not fighting for all of the all of the causes. I find that a very uh, a very harsh standard to to judge him to. But th- this will be important. I think people. 30, 40 years down the line, less than that, in fact. But that will be one of the things that stands out about him, as it does with some sports people of, of the past. Um, there have been ones who've had a big social impact as well, who've opened people's eyes to things, who've campaigned, etc. There, there's quite a long a long list of them, but it's not, it's, it's not universal. So you have to make a conscious decision that you want to be part of a positive movement as he is to to do that and he could very very easily if he was the if he was the person that was just sat there counting his money enjoying himself doing whatever he wants and hiding away then maybe you could criticize him for just sort of having an I'm all right jack type attitude to it but he, he's not he doesn't need to stick his head above the parapet it would be easier if he doesn't so even if for some reason you disagree with some of his causes although I don't know really why you would do you have to respect what he's done because he's he's not taking the he's not taking the easy routes uh, at all. What should we just try and wrap up a bit? I'll let, let you uh, let everyone give a, their kind of final statement on Hamilton. I mean, Scott, we'll we'll start with you. We're not trying to argue Hamilton's the greatest ever or the third greatest ever, but I think we're all kind of agreeing that he's right up there with with the the very greatest drivers, the collection of them that, that, that there's ever been. These these rare drivers who are profoundly important. Yeah, he's in the absolute top tier with um, with a very small handful of of drivers. Whether he's better or worse than the that elite group that he shares that platform with is is irrelevant to me. I think it's just give him the respect he deserves, appreciate what he's doing now, even if it manifests itself in some quite boring races and <laughs> narrative free seasons. Um, but he's done a he's done a fantastic job. He's uh, He's an excellent sports person. He's uh, he's an asset to to Formula One on and off track, and I think it is, I think he is somebody who, in years to come, even the those who criticise him now will reflect on him how he deserves to be reflected on. So it just makes more sense to enjoy him while he's still around, doesn't it? Yeah, I think that's profoundly important. How about you, Mark? How do you see Hamilton? Yeah, just an extraordinary performer. I mean, somebody that. Um, instantly um, 
could deliver at the, an extraordinary level as soon as he came into Formula One. And yeah, he's joined it up a bit more consistently in the, in the lat, latter few years. But um, the the level of performance he showed immediately um, told you that he had the potential to be an all-time great, pretty much immediately. And um, I remember talking to, uh, after, after he'd tested um, during the winter of 2006, 2007, so before he'd actually made his race debut, was an engineer at McLaren who'd been there right, right the way back to the late six, late sixties. Um, so I'd worked with all the greats there, Senna, Hakkinen, and he's as tough and a grizzled old bear as you could imagine. And I remember him saying, "Look at me," I says, "This is the fastest guy I have ever seen." And I. I was really taken aback by that because you instantly start thinking Mika Hakkinen and Ayrton Senna. And he said, no, I'm telling you, I've never, ever seen anything like this. This is the quickest guy I've ever seen. He said, and um, I, I think that really everything else since then has just been a sort of confirmation of that. And yeah, he's, he's refined it and the challenges have changed. Um, but yes, he's, he's absolutely in in that league with all with with those greats with the Senna's, with the Jim Clarks with with you know with with the Fangio's yes absolutely yeah I'd agree with that you can basically plot a line through Grand Prix history certainly world championship history picking out these these bar raising drivers through Fangio Moss Clark up to more recently Senna Schumacher Hamilton he's absolutely part of that and I think the important thing is you don't necessarily need to be a fan of Lewis Hamilton if you're sat Watching at home, you can cheer for whichever driver you want. But I think it's a shame if you don't appreciate what's being done because, and I've said this before, I'm being repetitive, but what would people give now for the chance to watch Jim Clark dominating a Grand Prix in that amazing way he he did, to watch Nicky Lauder in his pomp? You know, any of these great drivers, in retrospect, they tend to be appreciated more, which is why I think it's so important to enjoy and understand what they're doing while they're doing it as well. And it it's not about making an argument that Hamilton's the greater Hamilton better than Fangio or whatever. Or it's just making sure that, that people do realise that we are seeing a true sporting great in action because he won't be around forever. And there'll be a point where once he's retired, people say, oh, it's a shame he's not still going. Look how many people missed Michael Schumacher after he retired or Ayrton Senna after he was lost. Even those who weren't fans of them will have felt that loss as well. So it's important to enjoy what they offer on track and off track. Well, I hope we've uh, we've persuaded. If there's a few doubters listening about Lewis Hamilton, why he's to be to be respected, and it's been a it's been a privilege to watch him in action. I'm certainly hoping that next year we will see him in a more tight championship battle, maybe with a Max Verstappen, or you never know if Ferrari can make a gargantuan leap with their engine, perhaps even Charles Leclerc. But I think that might be a little bit optimistic. But yeah, it's just important for us to uh, to enjoy what he's doing and and understand what it is that makes him so. Great. Next week, we'll be back with our Bahrain Grand Prix podcast. That'll be the, the first of the two races at Bahrain on the, the conventional Grand Prix circuit. Do head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen. Loads to read on there, on, including Mark Hughes's piece on on Lewis Hamilton and his, his evolution, which is, which is well worth a read. Loads more from Scott, myself, Gary Anderson, and the rest. Check out our sister podcasts, including Bring Back V10s, which tells classic F1 stories, and also the Gary Anderson F1 show. We've also got a MotoGP podcast out there to, to listen to. And also check out our YouTube channel as well. We've got regular videos going out there. Just look for the race. Thanks very much for listening and join us next week for everything you want to know about the Bahrain Grand Prix. <laughs>